I felt like a failure. I felt like it was some intrinsic sign that I was a faulty human being. From the team behind Stylist, this is Nobody Told Me. Stories of life, love, grief, success and failure and the lessons learned by the women who survived to tell the tale. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. In today's episode, we're joined by journalist, author and mental health campaigner, Bryony Gordon. Bryony began her career in journalism at 18, building up a name for herself as a successful columnist and features writer for publications including the Sunday Express and the Telegraph, and she won Young Journalist of the Year in 2007. She married her husband, Harry, a financial journalist in 2013, and together they have a daughter. In spite of an incredibly successful professional life, Bryony's battle with mental illness has plagued her since childhood. She suffered from OCD since she was just 12 and struggled with bulimia, depression and anxiety since her 20s. She went to rehab in 2017 to tackle her alcoholism and has now been sober for over three years. In 2014, she began sharing her struggles with her readers and social media followers and has since written four best-selling books, interviewed Prince Harry about his own mental health struggles on her podcast, Bryony Gordon's Mad World, and started Mental Health Mates, a peer support group which encourages people with mental health issues to meet up and walk and talk without judgment. This is Bryony's story in her own words. My name's Bryony Gordon. Nobody told me that it's okay to feel sad. All through my childhood, I was worried about all those normal childhood things like nuclear war. That was one of my worries. And what else? Aliens in the attic, another worry. Fires. I asked my mum to give me a little bell that I could have by my bed so that if uh, there was a fire that broke out, I could ring it and warn the rest of my house. My mood dominated the whole house's mood and that my little sister, my little brother had to kind of live in the shadow of my moods as they were referred to. I would categorise myself as an anxious child. I had no idea that my brain could give me those kind of thoughts. I had no idea that this was something that one in four people would experience every year, as we now know with mental health issues. I was a child in the 80s. There wasn't much conversation about mental health awareness. I had no coping mechanisms for what I then realised as a child. I had really terrible obsessive compulsive disorder and depressions and I just thought I was a freak. I thought I was weird. I didn't think that I was normal. So I was very isolated in my own head. I absolutely did not talk to teachers about how I was feeling as a child and I couldn't speak to my parents about it. I was horrified by what I felt. And I think childhood is a frightening time. You know, your imagination runs wild, doesn't it? And that's one of the amazing things about being a child. But the flip side is you have no perspective. You have no kind of knowledge that that these things aren't, you know, the monsters under your bed aren't there. They're literally just in your head. In my later teens, I became convinced that I had killed someone and blanked out in horror on the way back from school. The only reason I discovered that 
I wasn't actually a serial killer was because there was a film out at the time. This was like 1998 called As Good As It Gets. And Jack Nicholson starred as this character that had OCD, but it was that very stereotypical version of OCD. And he won an Oscar for it. And The Guardian had written this piece about how OCD is actually much more than that. And they wrote about this type of OCD called Pure O, in which people had intrusive thoughts that they may be a serial killer or a paedophile, that they may hurt someone, that they may be all of these different you know things uh so it was it was ocd about thoughts so we all have intrusive thoughts all day every day but someone with pure o becomes really distressed by those thoughts and they ruminate on those thoughts to prove that they are not the thing their intrusive thought is telling them they are i read this and i suddenly realized that that was what was wrong with me i wasn't a serial killer i had this thing called ocd and i tore that bit of the paper out and left it for my mum she put two and two together and came up with four and took me to the doctor. But I didn't get any treatment for it at the time. I got given antidepressants, which I've been on ever since. I remember I was sitting in this car outside the doctor's surgery after they'd given us the prescription for, for the Prozac. And I wish someone had like opened the car door or wound down the window and said then, this is okay, kid. You know, this is hard, but you will get through it. And it's okay that I was feeling the way I was feeling and that my brain was misfiring. In fact, it was more than okay. It was really normal, you know? This is what makes us human. I now see OCD as my brain's way of trying to protect me. It was trying to keep me safe, but it didn't work. The thing about most mental illnesses I have learned in time is that they are incredibly treatable if you catch them early enough. So what was a quite treatable thing, which was this OCD, really snowballed over the years and into my adulthood. And I became like a magnet picking up metal shavings. I guess you would say that thinking you're a serial killing paedophile is quite a stressful experience to have as a 17 year old. And it was shortly afterwards that my hair fell out. I developed alopecia areata. And it wasn't long after that that I became bulimic. And I guess now I'm able to see that the link there was that I was desperately trying to control this body that I didn't seem to have any control over. You know, I hadn't control over my hair, over my brain. I just felt completely, I don't know, at sea. So by the time we got into my 20s, I was on the face of it, you know, functioning in the way that so many people are and quite successful. But I was a mess and it only got messier and messier. And I obviously, like so many other people, discovered alcohol and drugs. They were like, oh, wow, here's this thing that stops me feeling like a freak. And that, to put it bluntly, was the only treatment that I had for my mental illness. Of course, that, you know, became its own mental illness in itself. And it's so incredible to think of how this one little thing can grow into this unfathomably big problem that is very difficult to unpick and unravel and unspool. And I spent the rest of my adult life unpicking it. Even though I was struggling with all of these things and there were some really sad experiences there were also quite happy moments and I was pretty high functioning as a lot of people with mental health issues are 
we have this kind of quite narrow definition of people with mental health issues and we expect them to be that person clutching their head, you know, in the pictures that you always see in newspapers and magazines to accompany the latest research on depression. And actually, if someone comes to you who is on the face of it really successful or seems okay and is smiling and is managing to go out and they go, I'm feeling really low and you go, oh, don't be silly, you're fine. Do you know what I mean? That, that's a really harmful thing for that person. I think it's also we kind of like gaslight ourselves in many ways. That's what depression does to us. You know, that's one of the main symptoms of mental illnesses is they gaslight you and they make you feel it's all your fault and you're being silly. You know, if we have this very narrow definition of what a mentally ill person is, we're only feeding into it. Whenever I felt sad or depressed or any other emotion that wasn't happy, I felt like a failure. I felt like I wasn't doing life right. I felt like it was some intrinsic sign that I was a faulty human being. I look back now and realise that actually those weren't failures, they weren't flaws, they were just normal human neurological responses to what was going on in my life. But I was too programmed, I guess, into the cult of happy to be able to kind of just even feel those feelings. I couldn't even allow myself to have them. They were just a sign that something was wrong in my life and I didn't want, I didn't want to have to feel them. So I would drink or I would drug or I would engage in a, an unhealthy relationship with someone I shouldn't be in with, you know, all those normal human ways in which we we do try and cope food drugs sex gambling you know you name your poison i met my husband 10 years ago now and he was kind and he was calm and he was patient and quite quickly we found we were pregnant and he proposed to me and I had this kind of notion that because my life had taken the turn that it was supposed to, that it had been, I had been told it should take in books and films and, you know, on television programmes, that that was, that was it. I'd done it. Wow. Tick. I had a flat in Clapham. I had a bugaboo. I had a husband who wore like Hackett jumpers and went and watched the rugby. And I was like, you are sorted, Brightly. You are sorted. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, was that a harsh lesson to learn. I had thought that um, getting pregnant and having a baby would do for me what rehab does for everybody else. And it had never occurred to me, honestly, that, that I would end up picking up straight back from where I'd left off. I couldn't believe that even having this beautiful, wonderful, glorious little child in my arms wasn't enough to stop me from drinking myself to oblivion. That's a really horrific thing to have to kind of accept. And so I sort of buried that deep and deep and deep and deep and down under layers of denial. For me, I was having to say, well, I'm not an alcoholic because I don't drink during the day. And I'm not an alcoholic because I wait till my child's asleep. And I'm not an alcoholic because it was all those sort of things. And I had all these rules around alcohol and I thought I was in control of it. But of course, actually, it was in control of me because of those rules. A lot of people imagine that there's going to be this one moment where you're going to wake up and be like, I'm just going to stop drinking, you know. And every day I woke up and said I was going to stop drinking. And every day I didn't manage to stop drinking. 
And so every day I was fucking up, basically. My moment when I decided to get sober, it was actually a million different moments over many years that all led to this one moment where I was out. I had run out of self-esteem, essentially. Like, I was hollowed out by self-loathing. And I knew if I didn't stop drinking, I was going to die. And I was either going to die by choosing to, which was a place my brain had gone to many times and increasingly, or I was going to die by choking on my own vomit or, or falling down some stairs. Or worst of all, in a way, I was going to die by continuing to live in this Groundhog Day existence. I didn't want to drink anymore, but I had no idea how to stop drinking. And I could not imagine a life without alcohol. And that was when I knew I have to deal with this. I'd done so much work on my OCD by that point, but none of it really worked. None of it, none of it was sort of getting in. And I was, I was doing a lot of mental health campaigning. And I think it was that, that meeting so many other people and really immersing myself in that community where I realised my alcohol was not a healthy coping mechanism. I look back on the year I got sober, 2017, as a really monumental one because I ran a marathon that year. The biggest moment of my career happened that year when I interviewed Prince Harry about his mental health for my podcast. And all of these were moments that kind of led up to the possibility that I deserved to not harm myself every night with blackout drinking. It was like there was this version of me between two other versions of me. And I, and I had to say, which one are you going to choose, Briny? Which one are you going to choose? You know, because eventually, pretty soon, the die is going to be cast and you're going to have to stick with one of them. Yeah. So it can be fuck up Briny, who thinks she doesn't deserve anything, who just needs to numb out all of her fucking feelings and feel sad forevermore. Or there's Briny, who goes and lives life properly and runs marathons and does interview royalty and deserves all of these things and has this gorgeous four-year-old daughter. Which one are you going to choose? I went to rehab the day before my daughter started reception and that was the point at which my life really properly started, like in all glorious Technicolor, including the like frightening bits. I'm three and a half years sober now and I feel like I'm actually three and a half years old. <laughs> I've had to learn how to kind of live my life, basically. I had been to see therapists on and off as an adult between my 20s and my 30s, but it was getting sober and going to rehab that really was the moment where it all changed for me. I was very kind of cynical about therapy actually up to then. And I realised that was just, um, that's my mental illness. I write a lot about this in No Such Thing as Normal, that, that a lot of our cynicism about the tools there are out there to help you, like therapy, we can be quite like, <laughs> I'm not going to therapy. And I used to be really negative about talking about my childhood I was like I don't have anything I don't want to talk about my childhood I grew up in a nice terraced house in West London with a cat called Moppet we don't have anything to talk about I was very resistant right I don't want to look back at my life I want to look forward but when I got to rehab I really had to embrace that kind of talking about your feelings and therapy speak and all of that and it was a real shock to my system but but the more I embraced it, the more I came to see what a beautiful, wonderful thing it is. I still see my therapist once a week and I look back at 
17 year old me when I first went to the doctor who gave me a prescription for antidepressants and like believe me antidepressants absolutely have their place but to only take them and then not do the actual the other work is like I guess it's like an elite athlete getting injured and choosing only to take ibuprofen but not do any physiotherapy to get to the root of it. I'm so kind of evangelical about therapy and group therapy and peer support and doing whatever you have to do to get better. I founded something called Mental Health Mates a few years ago while I was still in active alcoholism, but I now see was me trying to kind of find my tribe. And it's a place where people can go to walk and talk without fear of judgment to talk about their mental health issues. And I think there is no such thing as talking too much about your mental health because it helps everyone. It helps you, it helps people you're talking to, to have conversations with everyone. Looking after yourself goes hand in hand with good mental health. So I'd always use exercise as a tool for punishment. I think in the past it was about losing weight and losing inches. And when I started using exercise for the gains and not the losses, I mean, that was transformative, you know. And the more that I would go out and do some exercise because it made me feel good the more I felt I deserved to be good I don't run because I want to be thin or small I'm not I'm like a size 18 to 20 I don't run to be the fastest or the strongest I run to be the kind of calmest if that makes sense I don't run to be fast I run to slow down I run to stop And all of those little things that I do in my day to help me are kind of moments, aren't they, where I'm stoking the pilot light of my self-esteem as opposed to trying to blow it out. Getting sober and doing loads of therapy hasn't meant that I don't still feel sad, angry, pissed off, all those other things, depressed even sometimes. I still feel all those things. But the difference I have now in me is that I allow myself to feel those things. I know that feeling them and going through them is the best way. So I try and go easy on myself. I try and look at why I'm feeling that way. Why am I sad? Why am I angry? It could be something like I'm about to be on my period, but it could be because someone's crossed a boundary that I've put down and I don't like it. You know, there's lots of other reasons. I guess what I try and do is step back for a moment and see what is under the feeling. On top of that, there are just basic things I have to do every day, right? To keep myself well. So I need to get up. You know, I don't tend to lie in bed all day. I need to eat three meals a day. I need to move. I need to drink water. I need to not drink too much coffee. I need to get the basics right. That's my foundation. I need to breathe. I need to remember that there's breathing to stay alive and there's breathing to enjoy being alive, you know? I need to do all of that shit. I need to connect with other people. That's really crucial, even when I don't want to, especially when I don't want to, I need to connect with other people. Most of all, I need to go easy on myself and know that just because I'm feeling shit doesn't mean I am shit. When I was a child, if I cried, I was immediately told not to. Don't cry. Don't be silly if I was angry. And of course, these are really natural parenting instincts. But now as a parent myself, I have to remind myself when my daughter cries to tell her that she can cry and that she should cry as much as she needs until she gets it all out of her. And I think what I've come to realise 
is that our quest for happy is making us fundamentally unhappy. Because when we feel any of the other feelings, we think we're somehow failing and we're not. Feelings are really useful tools that our brains use as a way to signal to us what's going on in our lives and and what counts to us and what matters to us and what we're comfortable with and what we're not comfortable with. And so they shouldn't be discounted and they certainly shouldn't be undermined. In my new book, I've written a lot about how mental illness has led to some of the greatest times of my life and how bad things happen, but really good things can come from them. And, you know, I suppose if you're in a mental health crisis right now and listening to that, that may seem unimaginable. And I've been there, babes. I've been there too. Do you know what I mean? You hear a lot about people saying that there's the kind of the devil and the angel on each shoulder and how, you know, mental illness can feed this other creative part of you. And, And I think when you're in mental illness, certainly in the times that I've been in real crisis, I would have given anything to swap that for just a normal life where I wasn't staring out the window worrying the police were coming to get me because my brain was telling me that I was the worst person in the world. But I'm sitting here talking to all of you right now because of what I've been through. I get to meet amazing people, you know, I get, I've made friendships, formed friendships that are so important to me with people that have been through similar things I have. I think that having been a questionable mother uh, in the early years because of my drinking. I've forgiven myself and I realised I wasn't a bad mother. I was just an ill person who sometimes did bad things because of that illness. But I'm now, I think, a pretty good mum. I'm a pretty good person. And I guess I've had to go through all of that to get to this point right now. I guess that my take on life is very much to try and see the positive, take a negative and turn it into a positive. And I've realised you don't have to be happy all the time to be a success. And my aim more in life now is to be content because I can be sad and I can be angry, but I can still be content. I can still be like, okay, I get it. Today I'm sad. Today I'm angry. I'm pissed off. I'm going through this thing where I feel disconnected from life, but it's okay because I will not be going through this forever. If I do these things, if I follow these things, I will come out the other side at some point and I'll be stronger. All of the things that I felt in my childhood made me a freak and a failure, I now realise are my superpowers. And I, I should, like, I'm just waiting for, like, Marvel to ask me to join the Avengers. And my superpower would be sitting with my feelings. Take that, Iron Man. You're listening to Stylist Nobody Told Me. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, and you've been listening to the story of Brownie Gordon. Mental health has soared up the news agenda over the past five years. It was a topic that was once shrouded in secrecy and shame, but it's begun to be spoken about openly and honestly and with the urgency it requires. Of course, it might not have yet reached parity with physical health, but we're beginning to grasp the consequences of what happens when we don't take it seriously. From royalty to footballers, pop stars to politicians, we have heard individuals bravely share their struggles with their mental health on public platforms, offering reassurance, relatability and advice to millions. Television shows, books and podcasts now put mental health at the centre of the storylines 
provoking crucial conversations around the dinner table that might otherwise have been left unsaid. Bryony has been one of the most important voices in this movement. We've seen mental health on the agenda in the COVID-19 response, and we're seeing more and more new policies, support systems and initiatives put into place to safeguard those whose mental health is at risk. All of these small steps combine to remove or at least reduce the stigma attached to mental health issues and illnesses. And let's be honest, it was a shift that was crucially needed. One in four adults in the UK experiences mental health issues at some point, a figure that increases for BAME women. The lockdowns of 2020 have had a huge impact on the nation's mental health, with young people and women most affected and forecasted predicting that up to 10 million people will either need new or additional mental health support as a direct consequence of COVID-19. I've been a fan of Bryony's for years for all of the reasons we've heard in her story today. She is always honest, passionate and empathetic. In fact, she's an all-round brilliant human. Her candour and humour around her own mental illnesses and addictions and the generous sharing of her recovery from OCD and alcoholism has undoubtedly changed lives and it's made it that much easier for people struggling to ask for help. But as she so brilliantly explains, that doesn't mean she's now 100% happy all of the time. In fact, she often feels sad and it's important for us all to remember that's just fine. As a society, we are completely obsessed with happiness, prioritising it over every other emotion. We want to be happy all of the time, but the human condition just doesn't work like that. The result is that many of us find it uncomfortable to sit and deal with the rest of our range of human emotions, like anger, sadness, jealousy or rage. We put our emotions in a box, we shush our children when they cry, and we tell our friends to be positive when bad things happen. But crying is important, feeling rubbish is valid and realising these emotions are nothing to be ashamed of makes it far easier for people to take off the happy mask and ask for help when they're not fine. We must remember we'll never be happy all of the time and as Bryony says we all need to know it's okay to be sad. I want to say a big thank you again to Bryony for joining us on Nobody Told Me. Her new book, No Such Thing As Normal, is out on January 7th. We have the wealth of brilliant women coming your way this series, so please do subscribe to make sure you don't miss beauty influencer Anjal on why she has to date in secret, or presenter Vic Hope on why burnout forced her to find acceptance of being alone. And don't forget you can go back to all of our previous episodes and listen to people like Sinead Burke on why refusing to be operated on as a child was the best thing she ever did. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions of the stories you'd like to hear more of, so please leave these in the podcast store or DM us on the Stylist Instagram. You'll find even more inspiring stories and life lessons on our website, stylist.co.uk. Thank you again for listening to Nobody Told Me.